Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is the creator of the team model, Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. So today we're going to have a, an episode that's a little bit different, um, which we call Ask David. And we've received some uh, listeners' questions. And so David is going to um, answer those questions um, on the blog, on the podcast. And our first question today is from Bryce. And Bryce writes, I was curious if you would be willing to speak about the concept of identity crisis. How can people in their mid-twenties figure out who they are? Granted, I know that identity can change over time, but it is, is there anything concrete that someone can buy into? It seems that at times I'm looking for answers in the wrong places or that I can't buy in the, into the simplest explanation. The most outlandish and tangentially unrelated solutions seem to make the most sense as the anxiety wants to feed itself. It's like I'm addicted to the search. There's a feeling that whatever is bothering me is something more foreign and complex, and that I'm reckoning with a foreign part of myself that I was unaware of up to this point. How can someone truly find themselves? Do we typically know all the answers already, but are hesitant to accept the easiest answers? So, David, I'm turning this over to you. Yeah. This, <laughs> Identity crisis. This is one of my favorite questions, and I think the answer will be quite surprising to the person who, who wrote in, and, and hopefully pretty illuminating also. Uh, there, there's... By way of background, there's a technique in team therapy we'll be talking about during the method section called the hidden emotion uh, technique. Okay. And it's based on the idea that almost all people who struggle with any form of anxiety, 80% of them, uh, suffer from excessive niceness. And the oh, niceness actually really? causes the, the anxiety. And to to prove this, we, we can't see our listeners right now, but in workshops I often say, put your hand up if you've struggled with some form of anxiety during your life, public speaking, anxiety, shyness, uh, phobias, mm -hmm. whatever, and 90% of the hands go up. And I say, now keep your hands high in the air while I ask you a second question. How many of you with your hands in the air consider yourselves to be basically nice people? And all the hands stay up, and then I say, that's what I mean. There's a 100% correlation between niceness and anxiety. And okay. what, that, what that means is that some of us are programmed, and I don't know if it's a, a, an abnormality in the brain programming or if it has to do with upbringing, but we think that we're supposed to be nice and please people all the time and not have certain kinds of emotions. Anger would be the most common one, but it could also be something you want that you're not supposed to want, or it could even be a tender feeling like loneliness. Okay. And so when you get that feeling, your body says, I'm not supposed to have this feeling, and you sweep it under the rug. And then you, you can't even remember what you're upset about, and it turns into some 
form of anxiety, in this case, worrying about your identity and, and who you are as, as a human being or, or, or some such thing, or it could turn into a phobia or panic attacks or, or just general chronic worrying or anything like that. And when you help the person bring this problem to conscious awareness, to pull it out of their subconscious, you might say, and then express that feeling or solve that problem, usually, uh, I would say, pretty much every time, almost every time, be more conservative, there's a sudden and total elimination of the anxiety. And this is one of four types of techniques I use in treating anxiety. And I'll give you a real story about someone who had an identity crisis. Okay. Um, this was a story I heard uh, from Aaron Beck when I was oh. first learning cognitive therapy, okay. and it made a tremendous impact on my thinking, both from a theoretical and practical perspective. He said that he was treating a young woman who came to him. She was a high school senior, and she said that she was having an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. She didn't know who she was. And so in workshops, I often ask therapists, how would you treat an identity crisis? And then they have all these ideas about helping people find out who they are and talking about their childhood, all this abstract stuff that, to my way of thinking, usually usually goes nowhere. What he did instead was to use the specificity concept that we talked about in the last blog on, on agenda oh, setting. Yeah. Can you tell me, uh, Joan, the moment when, when you first began to feel you were having an identity crisis that you didn't know who you were, and she says, oh yes, it was three weeks ago, I was, they have this class for seniors in high school on psychology, and, and we were reading some textbook about the stages of human development, and, uh, and it turns out it's not, you know, just the three stages that Freud talked about, but stages all throughout your life, and so I realized I'd done my, my uh, anal stage, and my oral stage, and right. my edible stage, but it said when, when you're you know, 17 or 18, you have the stage of identity versus role diffusion. Yeah. And you're supposed to find out who you are. And if you can't find out who you are, you go into role diffusion. Well, that panicked me. And I, I asked the, the teacher, how, how do you find out who you are? And, and he said, well, most people, they, they kind of know. And he asked for a show of hands, how many of you in the class know who you are? And all the hands went up <laughs> except for mine. And I started to there, panic. They were all 17-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it, there was nothing in the book about how to find out who you are. And I asked the teacher, and, 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 and he didn't know. And I've been asking people, and, and I'm just panicky all the time. And so then Dr. Beck asked a very practical question, and, and this is the hidden emotion question. Um, was, was anything going on about that time in your life that, that was upsetting to you? That, that's what you want to focus on, some mm -hmm. real thing, like, like were you having trouble with a, with, with a, with a boyfriend, with, uh, with your parents, with the class you were struggling with? And, and she said, well, as a matter of fact, I got two very disturbing letters in the mail that day. Oh, what, what were they? Oh, I got a letter from Harvard. I'd applied to Harvard, and I got a letter from Bryn Mawr College, uh, yeah. and I'd applied to, to Bryn Mawr. And then I asked the people in the audience, what do you think those letters said? And people said, oh, she was rejected, or 
or some such thing. But what the letters showed was that she was accepted with a full scholarship at both colleges. Yeah. And, you, and then you say, well, why would that be upsetting to her? Well, which one do you think her mother went to? Bryn Mawr. Bryn Mawr, yeah. Which one does she want to go to? Harvard. That's it, you, do, yeah. do you see. So he he talked to her about, you know, which college she really wanted to go to, how she might speak to her parents about this. You see, she was nice. She was the class president, first in her class, always giving, 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 and she doesn't think she she should upset her parents or right. cross her parents. She came back the next week. She she talked to her parents. Her mother was understanding. She decided to accept the offer from Harvard, and she said she was just fine and ready to terminate therapy. And Dr. Beck said, no, wait, wait a minute. I haven't helped you with your identity crisis yet. <laughs> and she said, oh, I don't have one of those anymore. Right. So essentially it came down to uh, an issue of specificity. Yes, and, and that we have real problems. There is no such thing as a human identity. Yeah. There's no such thing as a self. Yeah. That's just pie-in-the-sky right. abstractions. And if you're worrying about that, you're really upset about something else, and the idea is to, 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 to find out what's bothering you, express the feelings, solve the problem, and that odds are overwhelming, your identity crisis will be a distant memory. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, you know, I don't think that uh, I've ever heard uh, anyone talk about identity crisis in such terms. <laughs> Isn't that cool, though? I think that's cool. I, I you know, I, I've practiced specificity myself, and I think it's, a, it's a, you know, fantastic way to approach uh, what we call problems. Yeah. So our next uh, question here is from Sarah, and Sarah says to you, "Is it more wise to change oneself to make a relationship work, or to find someone who loves you for just being the way you are?" Yeah. Well, we can kind of a- answer this this one together and I, I can only give my point of view on these things I can't you know give the ultimate truth but to me the idea that, that you're going to find someone who loves you the way you are is, 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 is a little bit I don't mean to be critical but on, on the nonsensical side <laughs> uh, I used to treat single people a lot uh, yeah. single men and, and, and single women and, and a lot of the single men I treated uh, looked crappy uh, they, they they were decent looking, but they would wear crummy looking clothes. Yeah. And I would send them to a woman who worked at the King of Prussia Mall in Philadelphia at the Bloomingdale's. Her name was Kaneko Finkelstein. And she was a Japanese woman married <laughs> to a Jewish guy. The name stuck with you. <laughs> yeah. And she she was fantastic on clothing. She, she's kind of a genius. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, uh, you need to change the way you look. Uh, and they say, oh, no, I want a woman to love me the way I am. <laughs> I say, I'd say, you look like crap. <laughs> Why should a woman love you the, the, the way you are? What kind of woman are you looking for? And they describe this babe with beautiful clothes, you know, and gorgeous, gorgeous looking. And I say, well, women like like a man who's, who's attractive, too. Sure. I want you to go to Kaneko Finkelstein. Tell her that Dr. Burns referred you and, and that you need a sex uniform. <laughs> you have to buy everything you she tells you to buy. She's going to choose the underpants, the socks, the slacks, yeah. the vest, the shirt, the shoes. She'll make you look like a, a model, a, a living doll, and, and that helps. But that's just a kind of funny background story. In in general, 
in, in relationships, we, we talked about something called process resistance, that when you get into conflict with somebody, there's a tendency to blame the other person and right. to feel like you're right and they're wrong. And that blaming is, is, to my way of thinking, the cause of all relationship problems and world problems as well. We see this going on all over the world. Everyone says, we're right, we're morally superior, you're wrong, you're to blame, you have to change or we will you know, get, get revenge on you. And it happens in, in, in marital problems, it happens in, in, in friendships and in family, in family conflicts. And the solution, instead of blaming others, is to pinpoint your own role in the problem and to focus all of your efforts on changing yourself. And that's what my book, Feeling Good Together, is, is all about. And so I would say the, the secret of a loving relationship it, it, it is, is, is to, to look at yourself. You know, a lot of the mystics have said, examine yourself, look, look within to find the answer. Yeah. And this is uh, absolutely the case in, in, in uh, troubled or, or loving rela- relationships. We could talk more about this, but that would be the, I guess, the short answer. Maybe you could add a couple thoughts to this one as, as well, because I know you have a lot of expertise in the clinical work, and we've all had personal experience, too, well, with, with this. I'm also looking at this in a, in a more, you know, um, philosophical way, where, uh, you know, we, we tend to look for unconditional love, except that unconditional love does not exist. And so we're looking for a unicorn. And I think it, particularly uh, in, uh, in the you know, Western, especially American culture, um, I think that's a little bit different in Europe. But there's like this very romantic vision of what uh, love is supposed to be in, in the U.S. that uh, really sets us up for failure. I've often said, I'm turned on by what you're saying, because I've had many people who came to me clinically who were looking for love romance, and never once, never once in my practice did it end up with a good result. Yeah. It always ends up, ends up on the rocks. That is a kind of an illusion that, that leads to a lot of pain. And... Uh, you know, I, I had this man I was treating. He was he was kind of a stud, and he kept thinking, you know, he had to have this fantastic babe so he could have this fantastic sex. And then he would find these fantastic babes and have this fantastic sex, and then all of a sudden the relationship would turn sour. Yeah. And what was helpful to him was how fantastic does the sex have to be between 0 and 100% for you to feel happy and fulfilled? Does it have to be 99? <laughs> yeah. Would 88 be good enough? How about 69? There's a good number. 69. <laughs> but, but, but 100% uh, of the time. <laughs> yeah. But, but that was liberating. Then he found a, a, a gal who maybe wasn't knocking him off his feet, but they were able to develop a, a loving, deep uh, relationship that was far more satisfying to him than when he was in pursuit of this romantic idea. Oh, absolutely. I, I had a teacher who... Um, put it this way about unconditional love. He said, uh, you're a scoundrel, a liar, and a cheat, and I love you. I won't do any business with you, but I love you. Yeah, that's a good one. So in in other words, I love you from a distance. I don't have to like you, but I love you. Yeah, right. The one last thing I wanted to say on this, and these are just 
you know, quick, quick answers. You've got to work at a deeper level on these things to, to really make an impact on your life. But the other extreme is, is to blame yourself excessively. That's right, yeah. And, and, and uh, uh, so, so much that, that, you're, that you're depressed. And, mm. and, and, and that's no good either. That doesn't lead to, to a loving relationship. Yeah. And the yeah. idea is to be accountable w- without being self, self-blaming. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great answer for a very uh, difficult uh, topic. So our uh, next question is from JP, who writes, uh, I am a science-based person. Therefore, I want to believe CBT works. It has been around for decades. By the way, that's cognitive behavior therapy. For oh, yes, that's right. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, yes. But what's described in my book, Feeling Good. Yeah. yeah. It has been around for decades. My wife and I have been uh, taking our troubled son to differ- different therapists for 11 years. I've asked many about CBT with the response that, quote, I do that too, end quote. But it always turns out to be more conventional, bottom-up psychotherapy and maybe you can develop on what he means by bottom-up psychotherapy. Uh, why does it seem so hard to find true CBT in the southeastern U.S. if it works so well? That question saddens me, frustrates me, and angers me because I've had, since I wrote Feeling Good, I'll bet I've had more than 100,000 letters and emails from people who have, have read it, uh, most you know, saying... This book helped me so much, but many saying, you know, I've been looking for therapists who do this kind of therapy, and I ask them, they say they do, and then they don't. Yeah. And, and it's just kind of sad to say, I think that most therapy, I'm a bit of a cynic, and so, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but I believe that. I, I sense that you're going to become uh, politically incorrect right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to become politically incorrect. I think that most psychotherapy in the United States and probably worldwide as well is kind of schmoozing behind closed doors Mm. with the occasional bit of advice thrown in. And it's not helpful to people. There's no science science behind it. We're developing, you know, a new form of therapy. First it was cognitive therapy and now we've taken it to the next level, team therapy, which is like cognitive therapy on steroids, and it is phenomenally effective, and the research on cognitive therapy has shown that it's effective, and team therapy is even more effective, uh, to, although we don't have the research yet because it's, it's brand new, but it's, it's much more powerful than cognitive therapy, but learning it takes tremendous training and, and effort. And the therapists have to measure the effectiveness of each session. We measure patients before the session begins and after the, at the end of the session. Yeah. And we can see immediately how much the patient's improved or not yeah. improved. They, they give us empathy feedback with a very sensitive scales. We, we've talked about mm-hmm. this. And it takes courage on the part of the therapist even to use these scales because yeah. most discover their patients are not improving much. And they also their empathy isn't good. Their, their technique isn't good. But if you have the courage as a therapist to do that and to get in training, we've got online groups, there's a lot of resources on my website, you, you can learn these new tools. But I, I think even the training in the United States for psychotherapy is, is very poor. As a resident, I was just told to let my patients talk. That, that's, that's what we were supposed to do. Uh, and and, and I, never, I never saw them get, getting better. 
and, and there was no measurement, there wasn't even any idea that the patients are supposed to get better. You just kind of talk, you talk about their childhood, yeah. you talk, they, they express feelings, and, uh, and it's, not, it, it's not, to my way of thinking, valid or, or meaningful uh, treatment. I think we need an overhaul, a complete overhaul of our whole approach to psychotherapy in the United States and worldwide, as well as the training of therapists. You don't think that uh, you know this is maybe a version of uh, being empathic, and uh, and we've seen that empathy is actually you know useful sometimes. Um, but you don't think that that is well. Uh... There's two things. First of all, my research, which which I published in uh, top journals like Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology shows that empathy does have a causal effect on recovery from depression, but it's a small causal effect. It's not huge. Uh, And in addition, the therapists who think they're being empathic, uh, actually their empathy skills are not very good. When, When we've done surveys of clinicians in clinical practice and have them use my empathy scale for the first time, most of them get failing grades fr- from almost every yeah. patient, almost every session. So even right. there, the, the therapists generally you know, are not doing a great job. And even if they were doing a great job on empathy, you need far more skills, far more training to be able to bring about recovery for patients, a complete elimination of symptoms, and now we're we're beginning to experience high speed elimination of symptoms. I'm, I've been working, and I don't want to promote this too heavily because it's it's going more slowly because I don't have any funding for it or any much programming help. But I, I've been developing in my head an electronic version of cognitive therapy and and team therapy, and I have a I programmer yeah. helping me with a, a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm hoping to get a jump start on that thing because I, I believe, you know, there's research on my book, Feeling Good, that shows it's really as effective as, as face-to-face psychotherapy or the use of antidepressant drugs. Just if someone's depressed and you give them a copy of Feeling Good, there's a 65% likelihood they'll be dramatically improved or completely recovered within four weeks. And I, I know I can create an electronic version of it. It's not just reading, but a, an actual electronic therapy yeah, to interact with Back and forth with, with questions, yeah. And then we, we could make these tremendous tools available for, for people all over, all over the world. Right. And I, I believe that that type of intervention will prove to be more effective for many people even than a human therapist. And, of course, very inexpensive. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's like, you know, the... Uh, the therapy version of the Khan Academy. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, if someone is looking, there are some resources on my website for referrals, and, and they, you might you know find a good cognitive yeah. therapist there or one of these, the new team right. therapists. I found the link on my site to the referrals for cognitive therapists was incorrect, and I just corrected that to today, as a matter of fact. But essentially, your answer to the question of why it's uh, hard to find tr- true CBT therapist is because... It takes a lot of courage to yeah. be a real true CBT therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the last thing is, is that a lot of the therapists, it's fashionable to call themselves cognitive. When I wrote Feeling Good, there were only five or six cognitive therapists in the world. It was unknown. Mm. Now, in part because of that book, as, as well as the efforts of many, many people, it's become probably the most widely practiced form of therapy in the world. Sometimes insurance companies insist on it. And so it becomes fashionable now 
to call yourself a cognitive therapist when, when you really aren't. And, you know, people say, oh, I do that too. I talk about cognitions. I talk about thoughts. But they don't have the, the slightest notion yeah. of, of how, how to use these techniques. Because they want to say they're evidence-based and so on. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that was a very interesting session today. I think that was a little bit more uh, diverse and uh, maybe more entertaining than uh, what we've <laughs> done in other podcasts. But uh, I very much enjoyed this this one. So I think we'll have to do an Ask David again. I, I really encourage our listeners to go to the to the blog page on feelinggood.com and uh, you know put in their questions and comments so that... Uh, you know, we can respond to people as, uh, as they ask them. So, well, thank you for this, David. Thank you. This is great. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page, and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.